Amen. Thanks, Catherine. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to finish that chapter this morning. We started it last week. First eight verses of Genesis 6 kind of work to transition us from big picture, like this is Adam's family, uh, not the Adam's family, but Adam and his family and what's going on in that generation. And then shifting us over to here's Noah and what happens through his family. And so we started looking at that last week, that transition there, and trying to answer a question, or at least provide a way to think about a question, which is, when we think about Noah and the ark, what we're thinking about is the story of God's judgment upon the world for sin. And the question we started trying to answer last week is, like, morally, ethically, philosophically, can, like, is it just okay for God to kill everybody, like wipe out the entire earth? And how do we talk about that and think about that? And so we're going to move further into the story of Noah this morning and continue to look at that question. And really over the course of the whole morning here, try to figure out what is going on with Noah and why he finds favor with the Lord. And then what does that mean for us today? So I'm going to read through, I'm going to Pick us up in verse 8 and run us through the rest of the chapter. And while we do this, kind of think through the passage in this way. There's Noah, his life, and also the generation around him. And then God makes provision, pronounces judgment, but also promises a covenant. You'll see all of that. And then we get Noah's response. So this is Genesis 6, starting in verse 8, if you have it and you want to follow along. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. And then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. You are to make a roof, finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. And you are to put a door in the side of the ark, make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Understand that I am bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. You are also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten. Gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. Let's pray. God, would you open our hearts and minds this morning? 
that our time together, whether in song or in your word, in prayer, in relationship with one another, would be more than just like intellectual exercises, more than just like religious routines, that it'd be more than just a musical exercise when we sing. God, that our time this morning would be an encounter and an interaction with you. That our time this morning would be us collectively responding in worship to the beauty of the gospel. Help our hearts to see and our minds to understand and our mouths to sing and to verbalize the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. Deepen our understanding and our appreciation of grace this morning, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to work our way toward trying to kind of land on, if you will, a statement about what's happening with Noah here in this passage. And the whole thing starts with a, a brief explanation of his life. It's why I started in verse 8, because the order of this is important. In verse 8, we're told that Noah found favor with God. Then in verse 9, these are the family records of Noah. It's the third time we've seen that statement. We're going to see that phrase, these are the family records of, 10 times in the book of Genesis. First time we saw it, chapter 2, these are the records of the heavens and the earth. The next time we saw it, chapter 5, these are the family records of Adam. Now it's these are the family records of Noah. And each time you see that phrase, the book of Genesis is channeling your attention in a specific direction. Because the promise in the book of Genesis is that one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. And every time you see these are the family records of, the book of Genesis is saying, hey, look over here for the serpent crusher. Here's the records of the heavens and the earth. Look at Adam. Now, look at Noah. Then you get a little description. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. Depending on the translation that you have in front of you there, righteous and blameless could be translated some different ways. Noah was a just man. If you've got a King James or a New King James, you see the word just there. Blameless among his contemporaries is what the CSB says. Your translation might say upright among his generation or something to that effect. And then Noah walked with God. And when we worked through Adam's genealogy in Genesis chapter five in the context of Enoch, Ben talked about what it means to walk with God, to live in fellowship with God or to commune with God. So Noah was a righteous or a just man. He was blameless or upright among his contemporaries, which could mean that in comparison to everything else that's going on in the world in Genesis chapter six, Noah was upright, blameless, and righteous. It could also mean that if you picked Noah up and dropped him in any cultural time period, in any context in the history of humanity, he would be righteous and blameless. That statement gets translated various ways. But he's, he's just or righteous and he's blameless or he's upright and he walks or he lives in fellowship with God. I want to contend this morning, and I stand in like the line of orthodox Christianity over history in saying this, that the description of Noah here is about the state of Noah's heart and not about the perfection of his moral record. 
Saying that he was righteous and blameless does not mean that he was sinless. Saying that he was righteous and blameless is a statement about like the posture or the disposition of his heart in relationship with the Lord. I offer two pieces of support for that. The first is just the direction of the passage. It's why I wanted to back up and start in verse eight. Noah found favor. That's the first appearance of the word grace in the Bible, favor. Noah found grace from the Lord. In the midst of all of the brokenness that exists around Noah, there's like this shining beacon or spotlight of God's grace working in and upon and through Noah. Then verse nine, he was blameless and righteous. What does God's grace to Noah produce? It produces a heart whose disposition is to walk with God and to live in an upright manner. There's the direction of that is one way that helps us think about it. Another is that there are two passages in the New Testament that very explicitly talk about Noah. If you've got a Bible in front of you, this is a decent amount of flipping. If you've got one on your phone, it's just you know a hop, skip, and a jump, or a tap and a swipe away. Um, this is Second Peter chapter two. Here's one of these instances. Second Peter chapter two, verses four through ten. It's one sentence. It's one very long sentence with a lot of commas and different forms of punctuation. But Peter is talking about judgment. And he says this, for if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral. For as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then, so here's finally the predicate to all of that. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. The whole run there is that in the midst of judgment, God knows how to deliver graciously those that he chooses. In the midst of the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, God delivered Lot. In the midst of the judgment that comes upon the world in Genesis chapter 6, God delivers Noah. It's by his grace that he does that. This is what God has done throughout history. He's protected his chosen people by his grace despite both the reality of and the necessity of just judgment for sin. Another New Testament passage that explicitly talks about Noah is in Hebrews chapter 11, if you wanna flip to there. There's a long run here of people who live by faith. Hebrews 11, starting in verse one, says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by it, our ancestors won God's approval. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away. And so he did not experience death. 
He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now Noah, by faith, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, he built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The rhythm in Hebrews chapter 11 is not by their goodness, by their goodness, by their goodness, by their righteousness, by their righteousness, by their righteousness, by their uprightness, by their uprightness, by their uprightness. It is by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. But see what we're told Noah received by faith. He became an heir of the righteousness that comes from or is received by faith. Noah's righteousness came to him how? By his deeds? No. By his faith. Faith in what? The unmerited favor of God. Faith in God's grace. Noah was in, or Noah found favor with God. And as a result of that favor, he wanted to walk in relationship rightly with God. A righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. He walked with God. Verses 11 through 13 then give us whether a restatement of what the sort of moral atmosphere is like in Genesis chapter 6 or a note that what existed in the generation of Adam is still continuing in the generations of Noah. Either way, we're told that the earth was corrupt in God's sight, that the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. The key to this whole thing is the word corrupt. You, pretty much every translation translates the same Hebrew word the same way three times, corrupt. The earth was corrupt. God saw how corrupt the earth was. Every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. It's the same Hebrew word every time. Every creature, or your translation might say, all flesh had corrupted its way. And then God says, makes a declaration. I've decided to put an end to every creature for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to, and if you could read it in Hebrew, you would read the same word there for destroy that you read three times for the word corrupt. That word in Hebrew means destroy, ruin, annihilate, corrupt. The earth was destroyed in God's sight. God saw how destroyed the earth was for every creature had destroyed its way on the earth. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. It's the same word. And what you get here in Genesis 6 is a picture of God's judgment that is congruent throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And that is that part of God's judgment for sin is giving us what we seek in our sin. Romans 1 is the clearest biblical picture of this reality. Paul says in Romans 1 that God's judgment has been revealed against humanity, against all the sin and unrighteousness of humanity who acts unrighteously, despite the overwhelming evidence in the universe for God and who he is. 
Paul says that humanity claims to be wise but is foolish, that humanity exchanges the glory of God for lesser things, that humanity isn't worshipful or grateful to God despite the fact that he has lovingly created them and graciously sustains them. And then in Romans 1.24, Paul says that what judgment looks like is delivering humanity over to the desires of their sin or of their flesh. He's just gonna give humanity what they want in their sin. And that that is a piece of what God's judgment is. Let me illustrate this a few ways. The first is with the movie uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Whether you've seen the old version of that or the newer version of that, there's Charlie and his grandpa and they go into Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, but there are some other characters there with them. Augustus Gloop, Veruca Salt, Violet Beauregard, and Mike TV. And what you have are like protagonists and four antagonists. And you're supposed to see the difference between Charlie and these other kids. And what happens inside the chocolate factory is that whatever sort of like vice these other children bring into the factory with them ends up being the thing that ruins the factory experience for them. So Augustus Gloop, he is gluttonous. And at one point inside the factory, Willy Wonka is describing everything to the group and he turns and Augustus Gloop is down on his hands and knees, scooping chocolate out of the chocolate river into his mouth. And Willy Wonka sort of loses his mind a little bit. You're ruining the chocolate. It's pure and clean and you're getting it nasty. And Augustus Gloop is shoving it in his mouth. And as he reaches down to get more of it, he falls into the river. At which point, Willy Wonka is very much not bothered. And his mom is losing her mind. He's gonna drown. He doesn't know how to swim. And Willy Wonka says, he'll figure it out. And he gets sucked into a drain there inside the chocolate river and then appears in a tube that like launches him upward. And he's gone. Veruca Salt comes in and she's this picture of like wealthy, spoiled young girl. And there's a room where these hens are laying golden eggs. And Veruca says, I want one of those hens and I want it to lay a hundred golden eggs a day for me. Her dad pulls out a checkbook and he says, Willie, how much for the hen? And he says, you can't buy those. And he says, I'll pay you whatever you want. And Veruca's losing her mind. She walks over to where one of those hens is sitting and she falls into this chute that takes her down uh, to this like sorting place. And Willie's like, well, I don't know. She might make it. And then Violet Violet Beauregard, she's the gum chewer. She comes across this piece of gum inside the chocolate factory that is like a full meal over time. And she pops it into her mouth and it's the most wonderful tomato soup she's ever tasted. And then it's roast beef and mashed potatoes. And then along comes dessert and it's blueberry pie. And she turns into a blueberry. And then there's Mike TV. He's obsessed with television. Um, they're inside the chocolate factory. They've got this thing where they can like transport stuff and he wants to be inside the TV, but he gets all rearranged and lost in the transit of the broadcast there. And uh, the whole time, Willy Wonka is very unbothered. Why? They got the destruction that they wanted. They got what their cravings earned them there inside the chocolate factory. If Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory doesn't do it for you, how about Pinocchio? In the fable of Pinocchio, you've got Pinocchio and his conscience, Jiminy Cricket. 
and Jiminy Cricket is supposed to be guiding Pinocchio in how to be a real boy, right? But along the way, Pinocchio makes friends with a troublemaker. And the troublemaker wants to take Pinocchio to this place called Pleasure Island, where all of your desires you can just live out. And so at Treasure Island, it's like there's a house that you can just destroy however you want. There's a room that you can go into and just get in a fight with people. You can drink and smoke and have everything that you want, but what is the result of all of that? They turn into donkeys because they're like baser desires get them the destruction that they deserve. God saw how ruined the earth was for every creature had ruined its way. Therefore, I'm going to ruin them along with the earth. You can have what you want. The world and humanity were corrupted, destroyed, ruined, annihilated. So God determined in his just judgment to give humanity the ruin that they sought. That's the picture in Genesis chapter six. There's a famous line from Aesop's fables. Be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. That's the Genesis six picture of judgment here. And then in verses 14 through 16, God provides Noah with provision. Now, when I think about the flood account, it's four chapters, six, seven, eight, nine. In my head, the instructions for making the ark are at least like one chapter of the whole thing. It turns out it's three verses. And they're very nondescriptive. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. It's very helpful. Cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. If your imagination isn't great or you're not familiar with ships, that's significantly larger than the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. It's about two-thirds the size of the Titanic. Picture Jack and Rose. Okay, it's two-thirds of that. You're to make a roof, furnishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. Put a door in the side of the ark. That's helpful. Make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. There's your entire description. Here's the thing worth pointing out in this portion. He's to make an ark. Now, that word for ark is different than the word for, like, ark of the covenant that Moses is going to get very explicit instructions about how to make. That word for ark uh, is actually a port over into Hebrew from the Egyptian language. And what it literally translates to from the Egyptian is a chest or a coffin. Noah is not making a ship that's going to have sails and a rudder that's going to be able to steer through the floodwaters. He's making a chest that's just going to float them to safety. That's what the ark is. That word for ark there is used one other place in the Old Testament, and it is about the basket that Moses' mother puts Moses in in order to keep him alive and float him down the Nile to safety. What's that basket supposed to do? Just keep Moses afloat and allow him to live. What is the ark supposed to do? Just keep Noah and his family afloat and allow humanity to survive. Two different times, God uses a coffin to deliver his people through death 
to life. One time, a man who found favor delivers humanity through the judgment of the flood. And in another time, a child was saved from death so that he might deliver God's people from slavery in Egypt. In both instances, they were brought through water by the sovereign and providential hand of God. Fast forward to the New Testament here. Two different places in the Old Testament, God uses a coffin to ensure life for his people. Now in Christ, God has used a tomb to bring life to his people. In the words of Tim Keller, in Jesus and the resurrection, God has blown a hole in the backside of death. Genesis starts to give this picture of the upside down nature by which God is going to crush the head of the serpent. It's not going to come according to how we think it should come. When Adam and Eve sinned and death entered the world, they didn't die. An animal died instead so that they could have clothing. When Cain murdered Abel, Cain did not die because of his sin. God graciously provided a mark on Cain so that he might live. When the world faces judgment in the flood, God uses a giant floating chest in order to ensure that life would continue. In the ultimate act of salvation, Jesus dies so that we can live. Provision. And then verse 17, there's this pronouncement of what judgment is going to look like. Understand that I am bringing a flood. Flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. After all of that, we finally find out the method of God's judgment and it's a flood. We'll talk about the nature of that flood more in the weeks ahead. But everything on earth will perish in floodwaters sent by God as a means of bringing judgment upon the earth. Now I say that statement intentionally. The verbiage matters. Let me say it again. Everything on earth will perish in floodwaters sent by God as a means of bringing judgment upon the earth. I think it's worth trying to do our very best to capture the biblical picture as honestly as we can. It does no good for us to just paint a picture of Noah's Ark of smiling giraffes hanging out the window on the top floor of the Ark. That doesn't help anybody. What you have here is wickedness on earth that is thorough and widespread. Sin has permeated everything, both external in the world, but also internal within humanity. And there's this man, Noah, who has found favor or grace from God. And against that backdrop, the sin of humanity and God's grace, Noah chooses to live in a way that walks in communion or relationship with God. And God intends to bring judgment upon humanity for its sin, but will spare humanity through Noah. He's going to do so in this floating box full of animals. And that brings us back to our question from last week. Can God do this? I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Everything on earth will perish. Floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Can God do that? And you may not have that question. In fact, it's possible that no one sitting in the room here over the last two weeks has that question. But I think it's very possible that you may interact with people who do, or one day your children might have that question. 
So I think it's worth trying to answer as best we can, which we started last week. Last week I gave one piece of an answer to this sort of weighty theological philosophical question and that the way that we think about this question is the way that we think about sin. If sin is nothing more than the occasional slip up by ultimately good people, if sin is just bad things that good people sort of accidentally find themselves doing every once in a while, then what we see in the Bible in terms of judgment for sin seems way overblown and like God is just vindictive and angry and kind of petty. But the Bible doesn't talk about sin as occasional slip-ups that ultimately good people do. The Bible pictures sin as a cosmic transgression against a huge, infinite, holy, righteous God. The Bible pictures sin as a rejection, an outright sort of like high-handed rejection of the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And if that is what sin is, well, then maybe God has the right to judge. I'd like to give a second piece of an answer to this question. How we think about this question depends on what we think or believe about the character of God. In conversation about God and what he is like, some will raise the objection. Well, I don't believe in God because he seems vindictive, angry, mean. The protest will often go something along the lines of, well, if there is a God, I think that he would only be love and grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness and none of the wrath and anger stuff. And in what I think is a good-natured attempt to find common ground with people, Christians will often then resort to sort of turning God into this before and after scenario. Okay, I see what you're saying, but that was God in the Old Testament. Then Jesus came, and now God is something different. And even though I think that's good-natured and well-intentioned, it's actually a massive misrepresentation of who God is, and it massively misunderstands the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, God, he does that stuff in the Old Testament, but then Jesus comes and now he's, he's something different in the New Testament. This conversation about the nature of God, or more specifically about, let's, we'll use kind of like the, the highfalutin words here, the ethical and moral propriety of God's judgment. Conversations about that center on how we think about and explain both the reality of sin and what it means when we say that God is just. God is perfectly just as one of his many infinite qualities. The word for just in both Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek comes from a single word grouping in both languages. It's a word grouping that means Righteous. So when we talk about God's justice, we're talking about his righteousness. That God always acts in accordance to what is right. And that he is himself the standard of what is right. And he's infinitely that. So he's not just sometimes that. It's not just that, well, most of the time God does what is right. Or most of the time God is just. He is infinitely just. He is perfectly righteous in every way. And so if we take the Bible at its word, which means we take the Bible's word about what sin is, and we take the, God, or the Bible's word about what God's justice and righteousness is, then God has to act 
in response to the evil of sin. He would be unjust and ultimately unloving to just look the other way at the evil of sin. It's an affront to his character. It harms image bearers. It does evil in the world. And so in conversations about the nature of God, you will find nearly universal agreement with a desire for God, if there is a God, to be just. Like humans look at the brokenness of the world around us and say, well, if God is real, I would want him to make right everything that's wrong in the world and in my life. I want him to be just, fair. I don't want a God who could do wrong. I want him to be righteous. That'd be universally agreed upon. The problem centers not on whether we'd want God to be just. It centers on who gets to define right and wrong and who gets to decide fair punishment in relation to what's right and wrong. And so most of the time, how that plays out is we would want God to be just toward all the evils of sin in the world. And then when we stand before him in our moment of judgment, we would want him to be obligated to look the other way at my own sin. Make right all the sin and the brokenness in the world in the way that it affects me. But when I stand before you in judgment, give me a little wink and a head nod and say, I understand why you did that and let me slide on into heaven. So here's the real question. Do you want God to be just or not? Because he can't be just on one side and not the other. If he is just, he is infinitely just, which means that he is going to take everything that's wrong and broken and evil and painful in the world and make it right one day, but he's also going to take the eternal ramifications of sin and he's going to judge and he will be just. And so even sometimes we get to that place and we say, okay, and and in the Old Testament, you get these vivid pictures of God's judgment towards sin and it reminds you of the fact that he's just. But in the New Testament, he's different. No, the New Testament picture is just as vivid. It's that all of the judgment that you see happening in the Old Testament that ought to remind us of the reality of the evil of sin and how God feels about sin, in the New Testament, it falls squarely on one person the Son. The Bible's clearest depiction of judgment towards sin is the Son of God, sinless upon the cross, absorbing the full, just judgment for all of humanity's sin upon himself. And now what you have in the New Testament is not a God who looks the other way at the evil of sin. You've got God looking squarely at the Son, and seeing perfect judgment. Brother or sister in Christ, it is not that thanks to Jesus, God looks the other way at your sin. Brother or sister in Christ, it is thanks to Jesus, when God looks at your sin, he looks at the son and he sees just judgment satisfied. That's the gospel. God knows how to justly judge sin and graciously deliver his people, and he's done so in Jesus. So the question becomes, On this side of the cross, do you still want a God that's just? Because you have him and you have all of his justice given to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Can God bring judgment like this? He can. These moments in the Old Testament ought to make us cherish Jesus all the more. They bring a fullness and a vividness to what Jesus absorbed on our behalf on the cross. And then God makes a promise. I will establish my covenant with you. You will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your son's wives. 
You're also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of everything. From the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, they will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten, gather it as food for you and for them. We'll, we'll talk more about this promise or this covenant that God makes when we get to its explanation in chapter nine. At this point, it's simply worth saying that God makes a promise to Noah in the midst of judgment that he will deliver. And that promise is a binding agreement. That's what a covenant is between God and humanity. It's just worth pointing out that the covenant is more expansive than humanity. It includes creation. That covenant that God makes with Noah is going to cover Noah and his family and in some form or fashion, all other aspects of creation. Judgment is coming, but through it, God is going to renew humanity and his creation. That is a picture of the scope of God's redemptive plan, that it absolutely includes humanity, but it also includes the fullness of his creation. That's why when we talk about Jesus's return, we talk about Jesus coming back, putting a full and a final end to sin, humanity, those saved by God's grace, being glorified and new heaven and new earth. Noah is going to see a very kind of faint shadowy picture of that when the floodwaters recede The animals go marching out of the ark and it is though the whole of the earth is renewed or recreated. The fullness of that is going to come with Jesus when he returns a second time. Then in verse 22, we get Noah's response. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. Here's kind of the landing spot on Noah. Noah's obedience is a product of God's grace not an attempt to produce merit or earn God's grace. It's worth noting that Noah does not speak in the flood account. The first time that Noah speaks is after the flood, Genesis 9, verse 25. You can go back and read that later this morning. We think of this whole thing about Noah and his boat, but this whole account is actually about God and just judgment against sin and God's grace in the delivering of humanity. Noah's the chosen instrument that God is to continue forward his plan to ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Instead of Noah speaking, what we get are narrated accounts of Noah's actions. And here's the first one. Noah did this. Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. In response to God's favor, in response to God's promised deliverance, in response to God's promised covenant, Noah obeys. His obedience is a product of that grace, not a means by which he tries to earn that grace. And so as an application, Christian obedience is a product of God's grace, not an attempt to produce, to merit, or to earn God's grace. The default method of human activity as it relates to God is to do something in order to wrestle from God what we think we want or what we think we need. If I pray enough, then God will fill in the blank. If I obey enough, then God will fill in the blank. If I go to church enough, then God will fill in the blank. You've got something going on in your life or some kind of intense thing. And if I go to small group this week instead of skip it, then God will have to do fill in the blank for me. Our whole way of thinking is driven by like a vending machine model. Get the right input receive the right output. We default to this in religious matters. 
Most of the great religions of the world are, if you do this, then God will have to do that. But we also approach most of life in this way. I could use my career to get fill in the blank. I'll use social media to get fill in the blank. I'll use this relationship or this person to get fill in the blank for myself. There's a scene at the very start of the classic movie, White Christmas, where Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney sit down at a dinner table and they're having some conversation and Bing Crosby looks at her and he says, what's your angle? And she's like wildly offended by that. What do you mean, what's my angle? And he's like, everybody's got an angle. Everybody's trying to do something to get something. That's the default mode of the human heart. And we do that with God. If I do something, he has to give me something. But that is not the gospel. At best, that is legalism. If I obey, then God has to forgive me. At worst, it's some form of divine manipulation. If I do fill in the blank, I can put God into my debt and he must act in a certain way toward me. But seeing the goodness and the grace of God reverses the dynamic. Both Old Testament and New Testament help us see and grasp this. In the Old Testament, uh, Uh, particularly in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The constant rhythm is, I am the God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Therefore. I am the God who rescued you in Egypt. Therefore. It's not, you did this, so I rescued you from Egypt. It's no, I graciously saved you. Therefore, live like this. The New Testament epistles are set up with doctrine first, then application. Romans, 11 chapters of an explanation of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Chapter 12, verse one, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your lives as an act of worship. Ephesians chapter four, three chapters of explanation about the gospel. Therefore, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Philippians chapter two, right on the heels of that incredible statement about Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Therefore, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because you've received grace. Let that compel you into obedience. These two little charts come from a man named Christopher Watkin. He's an author. Um, And he gives two pictures of this. The standard way that we want to operate is on the left there. Obedience as a means to get something from God. So put it in the Noah context. Noah performs to a certain standard and God responds by declaring him righteous. But that is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is the you. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Therefore, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. We want... Our default mode is obedience as a means to get something from God, but the gospel picture is obedience as a response to receiving from God. Sanctification or increasing obedience in a Christian's life is not learning how to use God to achieve what we want in the world, but rather learning how to more deeply appreciate God's grace that then compels us into obedience. It's one of the reasons why we talk about the gospel every Sunday. 
so that we as followers of Jesus grow more and more deeply into our love and our cherishing of God's grace for us that was freely given to us in Christ, we get the reminder that God looks at our sin and sees the sun and the fullness of judgment upon him. Take the rain and flood analogy. Because of God's love, he sent the sun. And now by faith, you can get the umbrella so that in the flood of God's judgment towards sin, you're covered by the sun. And it's out of that that you obey. You do not need to obey to get the umbrella. You obey because you have it. The order of that matters a lot. And as we continually get that picture into our hearts, we not only walk in greater obedience to God, but we also learn to see and to use all of life as a means of enjoying God. Our purpose here is to know and to love God and all of life allows us the chance to do that. We do it most deeply when we live life according to the pattern that he's laid out out for us in response to the grace that he's freely given to us. He knows how to justly judge sin and graciously deliver his people and his people who have seen deliverance obey as a product of grace, not as a means to produce God's grace, merit God's grace, or earn God's grace. Brian, you guys can come up. There's an old hymn. It's not like one of the really popular old hymns. You know, it's not like great is thy faithfulness or something like that. Um, It's an old hymn called Here is Love. It was written in the 1800s by a Hungarian man, William Rees. And what he does, he takes all of this flood imagery and he actually flips it upside down. So the lyrics are, here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood where the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember, who could cease to sing his praise, he will never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. What you have in Christ is this flipping upside down. You've got a flood of God's grace and mercy, but not at the expense of his justice. He pours judgment out upon the sun that streams of grace and mercy would flow to his people. He knows how to justly judge sin and graciously deliver sinners at the same time. And in the person of Christ, we see that in full. And it is that grace that then compels us into lives of obedience. Amen? Amen. Let's sing.